we're going to be looking at again the book of Revelation, and we're picking up in chapter 8 and verse 6. I normally give you the doctrine at the beginning of my message, and so here it is. This is what I want you to take home. So as I go through these verses, uh, from verse 6 to verse 13 of this chapter, I want you to think of this and how this applies. This is the doctrine. God uses His means of grace, and what I mean by means of grace is that it is the gospel and the working of His Spirit within us. God uses His means of grace to bring prideful men to the end of their own strength in order to have him depend on Christ for the salvation of their souls. So let me read that again. As we go through these verses, have this in the back of your mind. God uses his means of grace to bring prideful men to the end of their own strength in order to have him depend on Christ for the salvation of his soul. And so let's briefly go through the review that we have before, just to bring to mind again what we have already talked about. The book of the Apocalypse. Apocalypse meaning things that are hidden, that have been revealed. And so these visions given to John on the Isle of Patmos, there are seven of them. And normally, through the Apocalypse, through these visions, we see what God is going to do for His people from the time of Christ all the way to the end where judgment is done all the way to the end where there is a new heavens and a new earth. There are seven of these visions. The first one having Christ revealed to John walking among the churches. And I assume, remember, I'm always going to tell you what I'm assuming and what my opinions are. But when I am certain that they reflect the word of God, I will say, thus says the Lord. Okay? And so sometimes I have to give you an opinion of what the scriptures say then it's up to you to take it home and to think about it, to pray about it, to compare what you know is in the Scripture. And we know that Christ walks among His people. The letter was to be written, given instruction by Christ Himself to seven churches in Asia Minor, and it is to be assuming, I would assume, also given to us. And so we read these, and these letters have within them a, a warning but also in encouragement and promises. Promises to the churches. Promises to those who overcome and who conquer. Now the second vision involves Christ being revealed and the throne of God being shown all the creatures of God, His angels, the elders, everyone around the throne of God where everything centers around His throne. All activity around the throne of God and how He is worshipped. And then we see the one sitting on the throne, holding in his hand a scroll, having seven seals on them. And a search was made to who could open them. No one could open the scroll, with the exception of the Lion of the tribe of Judah, Jesus Christ, described as the one slain from the foundation of the world. And therefore, being given this description, we can see that he was authenticated to have the authority to perform the actions that these seals represents. And so it basically boils down to this. God has the right to deal with a sinful creation because he died for sinners. He has the right to deal with a sinful creation. And so from there, we have the next seal broken, and we see that Christ, that is when he opens the very first four seals, 
we call them the four horsemen of the apocalypse, one representing the conquest that will be made, one representing the wars that will be waged, one representing the famine that people would have to endure, and the last one, the death that it was coming. And we see this repeated in human history. These seals, as in my opinion, are going to be happening throughout all of human history from the time of Christ to the time that there's a new heaven and a new earth. We don't have to wait for the four horsemen to appear. We already have conquests. We have wars. We have famines. We have death. They are here. Man, Christ has the authority to use these things for the glory of God. Okay, now let me give you a little um, preview of what I'm going to say in my conclusion. And it works a little bit like this. Some people will say to you, can God use sin for his glory? Well, when you look at the creation, you tell me what is without sin. All of God's creation has fallen into sin. Everything. The creation groans under sin. The earth produces thorns. Animals eat each other. Human beings have the nature of devils. If God cannot use sin, then God cannot do anything. You see, Christ has the authority to use sin to bring about God's will on earth as it is in heaven. Why? Because he is the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. He has earned to do with sin what cannot have been done unless he had died for it. And so that's where we're going to be going. And so in chapter 6, we also see the fifth and sixth seals being broken in which we see the martyrs under the throne or under the altar of God. We also see the coming day of judgment. We then had a vision of the, of the elect of God, the 144,000. That's what John hears. But when he looks to see, he sees an innumerable amount of people of every tongue and every tribe, all of God's people, without number. But they are the elect of God. Not one shall be lost. Not one shall be, uh, uh, there's not, not an extra one. All of God's people will come. If you come to Christ, he'll never cast you out. All who come will be received, and a number without number. And so, after this, we have the second, or shall we say the seventh seal broken, and there was silence in heaven. At that time, we looked at the prayers that were offered, because at this time, this is in response to how Christ received our prayers. We looked at the point of prayer, the people who pray, the place of prayer, the presentation of the prayer, the potential of our prayers, and then the power of those prayers. And it ended with the angel taking the censer that had the prayers, that had the incense burning, rising up to God. He took that and scooped coals of fire from the altar and threw it to the earth. And when he threw it to the earth, there were peals of thunder. There was earthquakes. There was lightning. All types of of things happened. Now, let's go on and see what trumpets come out of the seventh seal, because these seven trumpets come from the seven seals. That reminds us of this thing, that all that we read about, all the trumpets, all the plagues, all the things, the, the vision of, of Babylon, the vision of the great uh, woman, all these things proceed from Christ's authority to act as God of this world, as the Lord and King of heaven and earth, because he has earned it. He has died for sinners, 
and therefore can deal with a fallen creation. And so, that is why we have to say that the seals, even though they look devastating, were designed to comfort us in knowing that our God is in charge. Satan is not in charge. Even though, even in the scriptures, he is given to us as an image of, a, of an angel of light that is in control. And he walks about seeking whom he may devour. But remember the time of Job. He said, and when he appeared before God, God asked him the question, what have you been up to? I've been going here and there. I've been going all over the world. And then God asked Job, have you considered my servant Job? And he says, yes, I have. And he says, he's a man that shuns evil. He says, you let me at him, I'll show you that he will curse you to your face. And here we have the very same things going on in our world. Satan does what he can, but he only does so when God gives him permission to. He can only do what God allows him to do. Luther said that the devil was God's devil. We should not be afraid of him. Though he may kill us, though he may persecute us, he may have all types of things going on in this world that it will be very difficult to endure. Our souls are safe in the hands of our Christ. So with that, the seals are designed to comfort us, to enable us to endure unto the end, and that he is in control, and not we, not us, and not the devil. So, like the four horsemen of the apocalypse that we saw in the four seals, we have now the four trumpets. The four seals were grouped together, and then we saw seal five, six, and seven, which with seven is what we're in right now. Actually, even though we're talking about trumpets, we're still in the seventh seal. Then we look at the first four trumpets. They are also grouped together, and the last three come in woes. The angel will come by, come, come over the overhead and say, Oh, just wait until you see the last three trumpets. Woe, woe, woe unto the earth. And so the first four seals are given. I want you to take note that these trumpets look a lot like the plagues of Egypt. Now go back to your study. Go back to the time when you learned about how Moses was sent to Egypt after he was raised there. He was sent back to Egypt to deliver God's people. And God said to Pharaoh, he, God said to Moses to say to Pharaoh, let my people go. And God told Moses, he will not let them go. He will not let them go, and then you will do this. The plagues will come. The plagues will come. And those plagues look a lot like these trumpets, very much. The trumpets that we're looking at right now will be hail mixed with fire. There will be water turning to blood. Uh, the Nile uh, that is in Egypt also stank from dead fish. These things look very much like what we're about to see in the blowing of the trumpets. The trumpets will have a devastating mix of hail and blood and fire and blood thrown to the earth. The mountain-like object will be thrown into the sea. It'll be burning. A third of the sea will turn to blood. A blazing star is going to fall to the earth and all the drinking water, that is a third of it, will be turned to blood and people will die from drinking it. A third of all light will be taken away. The sun, the moon, the stars, a third of it will be darkened. These things reflect the very same type of plagues that came upon Egypt. But what I want you to also remember 
is that though these plagues, these plagues came upon the Egyptians, they did not touch God's people. And this is a miracle. God's people were kept in the land of Goshen. They had light. Their cattle did not get killed by hail. All the things that plagued Pharaoh and his people did not touch God's people. And now, are you, now you're probably asking me, are you saying that we don't have to endure the trumpets? Well, I'll put it this way. God has a way of reserving the wicked unto judgment and a way of reserving his people for glory. Though we may have to endure many things, we know that God is in control. We endure death. We endure suffering. We endure disease. We endure all types of things. But we know that our God is in control. The world, on the other hand, has all their hopes stripped away day by day. Day by day. These are plagues that are devastating to the world. But we know that God's hand is in control. And so let's go on from there. Before we begin the observations of these verses one by one, I want you to remember the words of Pharaoh. Remember what he said after each of the plagues that came. Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let his people go? Who is this God? And after these trumpets are sounded, John will say, and they refused to repent. The very same condition, the very same thing. So let's go to verse number six now. Now the seven angels who had seven trumpets prepared to blow them. Now what we see here right away is that we have angels. Now we discussed this last week. I happen to have my opinion that uh, even though there are only seven angels, the word, the number seven has to, has a way of saying, this is my complete number. Or shall we say, even the seven spirits of God implies that all of God's spirit Everything about his holiness. Everything about who God is. And so even now, if there are seven angels, I am tempted to believe that all of God's angels are ready to do his will at his command. They represent all the ministering spirits to those who will come to us uh, to help us who are the heirs of salvation. Now the thing that we should see immediately here is that these trumpets were given to them. These angels do not act on their own. They did not bring their own trumpets. They did not say, wait till they get a load of me. Wait till the world sees what I can do. No. They were given the command. They were given the trumpets. They were given the goals to achieve. They do the will of their heavenly Father. That is, they do the will of their God, Creator God. Only we have a heavenly Father. They do not. They only have a Father that created them as a shall we say, the Creator God. But they do the will of God. They do not say, these are the things that I will do. God gives them their goals. God gives them the authority to do what they do. Now, I've been working in IT for many, many years. And I've been given sometimes jobs to do that I've not been given the authority to do. And sometimes I have to say to my management, I cannot do that. You cannot make me responsible for things that I cannot have authority over. That's like telling people, do this, and they say, well, who are you? Uh, well, you, you can't tell me what to do. It works like this. The angels must be given authority, and they have been given. God says, 
take these trumpets. You blow the trumpets. This is what's going to happen. Authority is very important. Sometimes we say the words, in the name of Jesus, so lightly, that we do not understand what is behind those words. If someone comes pounding on your door and they say, open in the name of the law, you know what they're telling you? They have the right to come in. Now, if they don't have a right, well, then don't open the door. People have the idea that God does not have authority over them. And they say, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? Go get a warrant. But God has a warrant. He has the authority. These angels are anxious to do the will of God. They're ready to do it. They're not there saying, oh, I feel sorry for these people. Oh, I, if only there was another way. No, the angels are there, anxious and ready to blow. They're anxious to do the will of God. Verse number seven. The first angel blew his trumpet, and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood, and there were thrown upon the earth, and a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. And this is where I'm sure everyone is saying, what's he going to say next? Because everyone wants to know what this means. And believe me, there's plenty of commentators who in the past have gone through and sifted through the history books saying, when did this ever happen? If not, perhaps it's in the future. Maybe we just don't know what's going to happen. And, and, and there are some good men, really good men, who have said, well, there was a volcano that did erupt in Iceland back in the 1200s, and it did cover Europe with smoke, and all these things happened, and blah, blah, blah. And I'm not going to say that these things are not the hand of God, and that they did not blot out the sun, and that they did not create a third of the death of Europe. I'm not saying that these things are not true. But I'm saying also that there are many people who live in a place where there is no war, that there are no volcanoes. What does this have to do to them? Is it not true for them and true for the others? Well, I'd have to do it like this. We know that God is truthful in all that he says and that this is an apocalyptic vision and the very definition of an apocalyptic vision is a vision that must be interpreted. Now, I also know that there are things in the scriptures that are literally true, but also have spiritual impact. Did not the apostle Paul himself say, Sarah and Hagar, if you can hear it, this is an allegory. Sarah was the mother of the promise. Hagar, the mother of the servant slave. One is Jerusalem, one is Sinai. One are works, one are grace. One is the Old Testament, one is the New Testament. And yet, were they real people? They most certainly were real people. They most certainly were real people. They were literally real. But there's also a spiritual truth that is much greater than those two individuals. There are things that are shadows that represent truth, but it doesn't make the shadows any less true. You see, when it comes to shadows, Israel represents the elect of God. They represent believers, whether they're Jew or Gentile. However, if it wasn't for the literal Jew, Jesus Christ would not become flesh. How important is that? Do you see, the literal is important, but the spiritual is also important. So let us not say to ourselves, well, since I cannot find this in the, in the, in the, in the history books, oh, it hasn't happened yet. Therefore, it must be future. 
I would say, let the shadows be shadows and let the truth be truth. And let God open our eyes. I'm not the one that can tell you that. I can only preach what I know to be true. And now it's up to you. The vision that I see here is that we have hail and fire and blood thrown to the earth. Well, that seems to be a common theme in the scripture, isn't it? How many times do we see water and fire and blood? You say, well, I, I thought it was hail. What do you think hail is? Hail is a kind of water you don't want to have hit you. Okay? It is. And these were very large hailstones. They did not kill the cattle of, of, the, of, the, uh, of the slaves in Egypt. But they did kill anyone. And God warned them. The Egyptians could have brought their cattle in from the fields. And it says, those that feared the Lord brought them in. But there were others that had their cattle killed. And everyone that was out in it. When you have hail mixed with fire, what do you get? Well, you get conked on the head and then you get water. I had a friend out in Oklahoma. I worked with him in the army. And in Oklahoma, there's a lot of hail out there. A lot of hail damage on cars and autos and, and everything and, and roofs. And uh, one day we had a big old hail storm. I went out. I thought someone was breaking in the house. And I just looked out in the yard and it was big, about golf ball sized hailstones. And when I got to work, uh, one of the guys that I worked with, he was on his way to work on a motorcycle. And the hail knocked him right off his bike. Just knocked him right off. There's a lot of things that can be said about the danger of hail coming down from heaven and fire and all these things coming. But what did this produce to the earth? It burned up trees and grass. And what we have here is God saying to the world. And now here comes my opinion. We have God taking away what the world needs to live. In other words, what the world says, I can live without God. I've got things that I eat. I have plants. I have trees. Even though we can spiritualize it to a number of degree, we can say, well, men are like grass. So, you know, powerful men are like trees. But it works like this. We seem to think that we can live without God. But God is saying, it's that easy to take it away. Just like that. Can you depend upon me or can you depend upon what I can take away in a heartbeat? God has a way of bringing man to the end of himself. God has a way of showing men that they must be depend upon him and not on this world. God will take us to that point where we must depend upon him only. And those who see God's hand will learn this lesson. Others will say, things happen. Mother Nature happens. This is what happens all the time. And they do not fear God. Verse number 8. The second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood. Now, we don't see a mountain doing this. We see something like a mountain. And what is a mountain, anyhow? Something that is completely unmovable. Something that is completely in, you can't burn up a mountain. But it's something that the world sees as stable. Why, I built my house on a rock. I built my house on a mountain. I live on this mountain. And yet God can take what the world sees is, un, is completely stable. And he can take it and throw it right into the sea. And the sea that the people use for commerce 
Did you notice how a third of the ships were destroyed? The sea that is used for wealth, all the things that they can take out of it. All this can be destroyed because God can destroy it. God can throw it into the ocean and turn it to blood. And notice that we're looking at the land and then we're looking at the sea. And eventually we'll get to the sky. God has control over everything, the land, the sea, and the sky, and he can remove it anytime he wishes. And the world must understand this. And it says that it was turned to blood. Now, why does God bring blood into all these things? Well, the writer of the book of Hebrews tells us easily that almost everything in the temple was purified by blood. And what gives God the right to deal with a sinful world? A lamb slain from the foundation of the world. So we say, well, is, is this really real blood in the ocean? Is this going to really happen? I don't know. We're looking at an apocalyptic vision. What do you think? We're looking at something that must be interpreted. Again, we see these things that the world has come to depend upon their mountains, but God can take them and throw them into the sea. We must no longer think that our commerce and that our resources and all the things that we depend upon are stable. They are under God's control. Verse number 10. The third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch. And it fell on the third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood, and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. Now this is also a reflective of the type of plagues that came upon Egypt. But now we have not only the seas, and if you really realize, you know, if you looked at the, at the earth from, the, from outer space, like many photographs that we have now, it seems like the world is filled with water. But no one can drink that water, can they? That's ocean water. You may get riches out of the ocean. You may do commerce through the ocean, but you cannot drink it. There must be fresh water that comes from heaven, that falls from the sky, that's taken up out of the ocean, and it falls and it goes into the ground, filtered through the, through the dirt. And we drink that good water, that fresh water. It's called sweet water. But when something comes and pollutes it, when something comes and makes it bitter, and when if you drink that water and it kills you, then there's some type of image happening here, is it not? We have the light that's going to be dimmed. We have the water that must be drunk. We have the land that we depend upon, that we walk. Everything about it, God is saying, I'm removing your world the way you know it, and all of your securities are being unraveled before your eyes. And now that you have seen your world unravel before your eyes, know that there is someone out to poison your water. There is going to be a false gospel. There's going to be the truth that will be hidden from you. The lion that walks around trying to deceive you, he'll want you to drink bad water. He'll want you to drink or breathe bad air. He'll want you to walk around and say, uh, I am in control, but, you know, he is not. This devil is not. So let's go on and see that it is a possible thing that a third of the oceans should, um, uh, should become blood. But what about the waters of the world that we drink? We can see that there is something at play here where God is showing us that we must depend upon him alone and that all these things can be taken away from us. And lastly, let's take a look at verse number 12. 
the fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon, a third of the stars, that, and a third of their light was darkened, and a third of the day was kept from shining, and likewise a third of the night. Now, after we have seen that the land has been impacted, we have seen that the sea has been impacted, and now the heavens itself, we can see that there's a lot of metaphors going on here. There's a lot of recurring themes here where you have Christ is the living water. He is the one that if you drink of this water, you'll never thirst again. Christ is the light of the world. He shows the truth to the world. You believe the truth, you'll be saved. There's also the blood of Jesus Christ that saves you. You'll either go before the throne and either your blood will pay for your sin or the blood of Christ will pay for your sin. There is a recurring theme of, an, of the apocalyptic vision here. And so, in the very last verse, we see this. I looked up and an angel cried with a loud voice as it flew overhead, Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth. And we'll see in the coming chapters how that these woes are going to be escalating the type of danger that the world is actually in because God is going to remove and unravel their world. He's going to remove their securities and he's going to let them see that they're in danger of hellfire and danger from being judged by a holy God. And so with this, let's go on to some practical applications. Practical applications. I have two to give you. This is where, again, I remind you that this is my opinion. Do not say, well, if it's opinion, I'm done listening. Please give me an audience. Allow me to say what I need to say. I ask you to keep an open mind and an open heart to apply the scriptures to what you already know to be true. There is an interesting thing about looking at the plagues of Egypt, and it is this. Though God brought plagues upon Egypt and Pharaoh, he did so through the voice of Moses. God sent Moses. It was the staff of Moses and Aaron that brought these plagues to Egypt, and God's people did not endure them. Now, am I saying that you don't have to endure what we see here? I'm saying this, you don't have to be afraid of them. They're in the hands of your father. They're in the hands of someone who loves you. And all these things work for the good of those who love the Lord. That is what I'm saying. Moses was indeed instrumental in bringing the plagues of the world. We indeed may be used of God to bring great suffering to unbelievers in this world. Now, why would I say something like that? The Apostle Paul tells us plainly in 2 Corinthians that the gospel is a fragrance from death to death. I don't know if you know what that means, but the gospel is also a savory, beautiful smell of life to life. Let me read the scripture to you. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 15, we read this. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. Now please listen to this scripture. I'm going to read it again. We are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. One, a fragrance from death to death, to the other, a fragrance of life to life. Now I've said it in different ways. I usually say it like this. The same sun that melts the butter hardens the clay. 
And when we preach the gospel, it is a blessing to God's people, but it is also a curse to the world. They hate the gospel. Someone will say, I'll not ruin my life by listening to hellfire damnation preaching. I don't want to have God loom over me and tell me I'm wrong and to be afraid of death all the time. They do not want to hear God's judgments. But we are here to proclaim them, aren't we? We are here to say judgment is on its way, whether it makes you feel comfortable or not, whether it makes you lose sleep or not, whether it makes you feel as though I don't like church and I don't like God. He is so scary to me. Listen, God is merciful and he is patient. The world needs to hear the gospel, folks. There are things that we must see our place in the apocalypse and our place has to do with prayer. And God takes the fires of the coals, casts it to the earth, and the trumpets are sounding. Why do you think that happens? He smells the prayers of his people. He also says that Moses put his rod and waters became blood. The sun became black. What are we doing? We're preaching about the blood of Jesus Christ and their world is coming to an end and they don't like it. Remember in the future when it describes, I'm going to give you just a foretaste of what's going to happen in the future. And that is, we're going to be talking about two witnesses preaching. And you know what they can do? They can bring fire from heaven anytime they want. Fire from heaven anytime they want. And this is how the enemies of God must be killed. The enemies of God must be killed by fire that he calls down from heaven. I'm telling you, God is coming in judgment, in fire, from heaven. He's coming to judge this world. And if you're comfortable living in this world the way you are, you should not be. You should not be comfortable living in this world until you have made your peace with God. This is called hellfire and damnation preaching. And the witnesses smote the people as many times as they wanted to. I may even preach about it again next week. As many times as I want to. As many times as God leads us to. As many times as the people need to hear it. We see powerful themes. The blood of Christ. The water of life. The light of the world. Do you not see them in the apocalypse? Now... Remember, our prayers and our preaching is how we interact, and this is our part. The second application is this. God is patient, and man is impatient. I want you to remember that God is a holy God. Have you ever heard of the phrase, justice deferred is justice denied? Now, I've never, I can't remember who said it, but I'm pretty sure it was a Supreme Court justice having to do with segregation of schools. But it is a true statement. Justice deferred is justice denied. However, when Christ became the lamb slain from the foundation of the world, he now has the authority and the ability to deal with a sinful world 
without immediately destroying it. He has deferred justice. But it is not justice denied. It is mercy granted. It is patience. Patience. God now has patience to deal with this world. And this is what the world does with it. Well, where is his coming? Instead of saying, God is a gracious and patient God. He's not going to destroy the world until all of his people are safe. Let me read this to you. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. And see, God is, you know, he's not patient. He's just not there. That's what he's saying. But I'm telling you, God is patient. In the same chapter of 2 Peter, let's read verse number 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise. He's not slow. As some count slowness, but is patient toward you. That is it, isn't it? The ability of Christ to deal with a sinful world enables a long-suffering God to deal with sinners in a way that one day his will in heaven will be done on earth. That's what he's doing. He's breaking these seals. He has the authority to deal with the earth, with sinful people. And you may say, well, how do, how do you know God can, can work with sin? How do you know that God can actually bring something good out of sin? Because he died for sin. He came into a sinful world, took on sinful flesh, and he rose from the dead and has the authority to do good, even out of all that is bad. And he is now able to be patient with you. But is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And believe me, all of God's people will hear and come. God will lose no one. God will lose, lose no one. And his patience is an amazing thing in our sight. It's a marvel in our sight. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? waiting for the hastening, the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. God is patient toward us because of this. So in conclusion, let me just say and repeat, the doctrine I wanted you not to forget. God uses his means of grace to bring prideful man to the end of his own strength in order to have him depend on Christ for the salvation of his soul. Do not wait for a mountain to fall into the ocean, but wait for your world to fall apart if you're not in Christ. Because if God truly loves you, you're in a world of of trouble and God's going to take your life apart why so that you may live for the glory of God and depend upon Christ there's a lot that's going to be happening if you have eyes to see 
and ears to hear. Hear the gospel, repent and believe, and Christian, pray. Preachers, preach. Let God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. At this time, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to have our Lord's Supper. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, we now ask that your word have its way in the hearts of your people. We pray, Lord, that the truth might take root within us, that we might live for your glory all the days of our lives. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for taking upon yourself our sin, that you may work all things according to your will. We pray this in our Lord's name. Amen.